Okay, session eight. We're getting close to the end here already in terms of this first portion of the course. My goal is to get through chapter five in this next time frame. Two emphases, chapter four, the emphasis and the focus, the throne. Chapter five, the emphasis and the focus on the scroll. And maybe more specifically, not so much the scroll, but uh, the person who is able to open that scroll. So we'll take a look at that. Just a reminder, tomorrow, uh, the plan for tomorrow uh, in the morning will be to go back to chapter 3. I'm going to do the church at Laodicea. And for the second hour, uh, I will plan on doing at least the first part of chapter 6 and see how far I get in it. And where we leave off, we'll pick up in the afternoon and complete 6 and chapter 7. That's the goal for this portion. The goal will be to get through this subdivision, which would be chapter 7. And then the next subdivision begins in chapter 8 through, uh, where does that go to? 11, I believe. We just completed looking at the 24 elders. And I concluded that they are representatives of the church because consistently the term elder is a reference to leadership. Now, I didn't mention and, and should have, uh, there is the po- at least these leaders that represent the church are in view and are around the throne. It is also possible that we would be there as well. Uh, I don't see why we would not be there, but at least representatives of the church, representatives of saints during the church age. So the 24 elders around the throne were 24 thrones. Now they are ruling. In other words, these are ruling thrones uh, and possibly judgmental thrones as well. The saints are going to judge. Did you know that? Faithful saints are going to be a part of God's judgment And probably during the early stages of the Millennial Kingdom. I'm not sure how much during it. But what does Paul say in uh, 1 Corinthians 6 about believers? They were having a problem solving internal issues. They were going to law courts outside. And Paul condemns that and says, don't you know you're going to judge the nations? Same context, he says, you will judge angels. So believers, even as carnal as the Corinthians, are going to do judgment. And that's why he's critical of them. Uh, They should be able to solve these little issues within the church. So these thrones are ruling and judgmental thrones, I believe. Around the throne, around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones, 24 elders sitting. 
And clearly, these are believers consistent in the book of Revelation. Clothing seems to be an image, even though it doesn't, uh, in this context, doesn't say like or... uh, But the clothing is maybe not so much a symbol, but represents the concept of regeneration, salvation, cleansing. That goes all the way back to what? where garments are associated with redemption. All the way to Genesis 3.21. Is that the exact verse? I'm not positive, but I believe you. (laughs) But it does go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember, Adam and Eve tried to cover their sin on their own, which was an inadequate covering, It required that Jesus provide a sacrifice that covered them. So garments throughout Scripture represent, and particularly in the book of Revelation, white garments, cleansed, the idea of uh, cleansing and purity. So these are cleansed believers, 24 elders, probably representatives of the church, probably leaders, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. They have rewards. They lived up to all that God expected. Probably not perfectly, but to the extent that they have these crowns. Now we have things from the throne. We have 24 elders around the throne. From the throne proceeds flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. Now that's interpreted for us, which are the seven spirits of God. Well, what is this thunder and lightning and sounds and peals of thunder? Kind of a noisy place. It seems to me that uh, this is an illusion of what's to come here. It's an illusion to something is pending here. There's, there's a storm coming. Uh, this anticipates the storms of the opening of the seven seals that will, or the six seals first that we'll see in chapter six. Uh, so we already have hints that something is impending here. We have lightning and flashes of flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Uh, again, the imagery uh, is that of coming judgment. The question is, who are these creatures in the latter part there of verse 5? Or actually, that's the next verse. Let's see, where are we? Seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, we already dealt with that and we already uh, interpreted that. Uh, it's probably a reference that we already saw in chapter 1. Uh, that's why I wanted to spend some time in chapter 1 because some of these images come up again and again and again. So once we've interpreted them, there's no need to go back. We looked at that as a reference primarily to the Holy Spirit in fullness But that moves us to the next verse. 
So the Holy Spirit in all of His fullness is there. This is another Trinitarian passage if you take chapter 5 with it. So we will probably have the Father who's seated on the throne and here's a reference to the Spirit. And in chapter 5, we will have a reference to the Lamb. Verse 6, Before the throne, there were, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now, John again is recording what he sees. And this is the vision. Who are these living creatures? Again, we have a series of strange views. The four elements... Four women in the Lord's genealogy. I don't know where they come up with these things. Four cardinal virtues. I'm not sure which ones those are. Four faculties and powers of, of the human soul. And on and on. I, I've got a list of 16 of these odd ones out of different and variety of commentaries. Uh, another suggestion is all of creation all animated creation, most important created beings. Uh, the reason given for that is because of their closeness to the throne. I don't know why that's a reason. Thirdly, attributes of God. So they're not really creatures at all. This departs from literal interpretation of the details there. Just to give you a feel for what you'll find in different commentaries. Fourthly, a picture of redeemed. So we have the 24 elders. Now those that hold that these are leaders can't help but see the redeemed in there. So we need to include them. It's always about us, remember? Once again, we have to be there. Well, these look more like cherubim or angelic creatures. They're similar to what we see in... Passages in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 9, where we have angelic creatures. We also have, probably even in Genesis 3, where we have uh, creatures of strange description. So these living creatures that we have in this passage possibly are representatives of maybe all the angels or at least four uh, represented there. So, that's what I would interpret these creatures. Full of eyes in front and behind. So, they are intelligent beings, beings with vision, with capability of visualizing. Now, these creatures are important because they will come to the front in some of the other events that we will have later on. So, they're introduced to us, so it's important that we get it clear, and I think clearly they are angelic creatures. Again, we're going to see angels over and over and over 
uh, one of the main functions that we've been talking about in the book of Revelation, angels will in fact be the agents that God uses, the instruments of judgment. And these four specifically will be agents in that area. So they're introduced to us before the throne. Uh, what this is telling us, because later on when we encounter these angels again, we're going to see all of this comes, all of this emanates from the throne. Now, when we look and evaluate the specific judgments that we will do when we get to chapter 6, some of them we see are probably the result of consequences of human action and probably things that are done by humans themselves, obviously. But they're not on their own. In other words, they're, they're not just random or they're not just uh, occurrences. They are, there's an orchestration behind it. There's, there's events, unseen forces that are working to effect judgment. Uh, I'll bring that out when we get to chapter 6. But I want you to just notice one little thing just to indicate uh, that the point I'm making here. These judgments are coming from the throne. They're coming from God. The ultimate sovereign hand is God Himself. He is the ultimate author of judgment. One little hint of that is in chapter 6. When we have the opening of the seals, just notice what it says in uh, verse 2. I looked and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow... And a crown was, and I want you to highlight and notice, was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. And we already mentioned that's the word nikao. But notice the little phrase was given to him. In other words, there are forces, there are actions that are orchestrated behind the scenes that you cannot see. Uh, this is not just something that totally originates from uh, things human or things on earth. Consistently in, Gen in uh, Revelation 6, we have that little phrase, given. In fact, I'm going to highlight that Sunday. Uh, verse 4, another red horse went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted... In other words, divine granting, divine direction, uh, God's hand behind these judgments. So they're, they're coming uh, as a result of a sovereign God who is judging, uh, judging the earth. The agents that he will use in much of these judgments are these cherubim or these four living creatures, these angelic creatures. The point I'm making is they are coming from the throne. This is where it originates. In fact, everything originates from God. So we have this foundation laid for us. So unmistakably, from the very beginning of this great period of time, we have the heavenly perspective. They're horrendous. In fact, we will see and be amazed at how um, devastating these judgments are. And it should impress us with the severity and the damage that sin does, that such drastic action is required from God to wipe it off the face of the earth. And that's what he's doing. It all begins from this throne.
So we have the roots of that in chapter 4. So before the throne are these living creatures. Now we have a description of them. And the first creature was like a lion. And again, we have all kinds of suggestions here. I don't know that I want to get into any of them. Uh, a lion is considered the king of all beasts. Maybe it's a picture of majesty and omnipotence. The second, uh, like a calf, the commentator suggests uh, the kind of the sedentary nature of cows, so patience and continuous labor, that idea perhaps. Uh, I don't know what's pictured here. Uh, I'm just giving you the suggestions. <laughs> it's hard to decide. Uh, bottom line, on, on all of these visions, I, I think there's, there's room and latitude for some uh, flexibility and particularly this here where it's not real crucial. Uh, but the text does, in fact, give us some detail concerning these descriptions. And, uh, the third creature had a face like that of a man, which is also interesting. The greatest of all creatures with high intelligence and rational capabilities, ra rational powers. Uh, the fourth creature was like a flying eagle, the greatest of birds, kind of supremacy over the skies, swiftness. And when it comes to judgment, uh, maybe swiftness of judgment, um, uh, king of the beasts, when they are involved in judgment, maybe it has the omnipotent power of judgment uh, that is in view, perhaps. These, I, I think these are possible suggestions. Uh, but it's also uh, divine patience that is in view in terms of judgment, in terms perhaps pictured by the one that looks like a calf. More important than what these things mean is 4 through 11. The seven seal scroll section or subdivision, we have the origin of the scroll in heaven. And we have one seated on a throne and... The passage not only concludes, but the emphasis is on worship. And I've mentioned, here's the first extended worship. We've already had glimpses of brief worship, primarily from John. I've already drawn out that the proper object of worship is God Himself. We're going to see some of these same elements repeated in this heavenly scene. Let's read this passage. Verse 8, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, further description, are full of eyes, full of vision, omniscient, well, not omniscience, only God is omniscient, uh, full of vision, uh, full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, and we have the content. So this gives us a hint as to what is the proper content? Now, this isn't necessarily exhaustive, but it does give us an idea of what proper worship is all about. Uh, in this case, we're 
given an insight into attributes of God or the character and nature of God. It's good to reflect on that. And as we think of that, just be amazed of who God is. Uh, this is from Isaiah 6. Holy and ho- holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. The holiness of God, stressed and emphasized. Uh, I'm not sure why, but the holiness comes in these threes in Isaiah, and we have it repeated here. We don't have the uh, maybe a, a stress that this is especially. Evident in the Trinity, maybe. I don't know. Uh, We don't have elsewhere omnipotent, 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 or almighty, almighty, almighty. It's just holy, holy, holy. Uh, So that's a major area that we ought to think about and meditate on and, in fact, uh, praise God for. That's what the angels do. They're aware of His holiness. His holiness is evident to angelic creatures. So, proper content would involve the attributes or nature of God. So, in worship, we've already mentioned they're worshiping the one on the throne, so there is a proper person to worship. We've already seen that. We've already seen the proper content We also see here persistence. It says day and night. That's a principle to uh, implement and an application to draw. Uh, Not just Sunday morning. Not just uh, on those occasions that are designated as times of worship. But we should have an attitude or a consistent outlook of worship. These creatures worship day and night. The particulars or the content, I'm using P's here, as you can see. I've got a bad habit. <clears throat> Need to break it. The particulars or, in parentheses, content. In this case, the holiness, the attributes of God. Holy is the Lord. The Almighty, who was the eternality of God. Angels are well, well aware of omnipotence, are aware of holiness, are aware of eternality, who was and who is and who is to come. Here's another reference to the one seated on the throne who seems to be clearly the Father and that same little phrase, uh, to come. So uh, it fits in with what we said before. Uh, or adds support. Where it was not as clear in that prior passage Uh, This adds to support the idea that the Father is in view there. Uh, Worship seems to be contagious in heaven. Verse 9, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks, uh, this is a description of worship. Thanksgiving is a form of worship. Just praising, uh, giving glory is a form of worship. Honor, uh, just honoring, just bowing one's heart. Uh, When they do this, when they uh, give Him who sits on the throne to Him who lives forever and ever, this causes the 24 elders to fall down before Him. 
again, we see here a proper position, bowed at least in one's heart. Uh, before Him who sits on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. So John, even himself in the description, worships. Or at least in his, his vision as he sees it. Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. Recognizing that uh, any any crowns that we receive, any rewards that we receive, really belong to Him. He is the one that really affects ministry. He is the one that empowers us to do anything. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. That's what the New Testament teaches. Uh, yet Paul also says, in Him, all things are possible. So ultimately, the crowns that are granted to us are really works that God has produced through us and are not things that we could produce on our own. So in acknowledgement of that, I think the elders who are representative of believers, they cast their thrones before the, the throne. And now they break out in, uh, in worship or overt Words, and notice the content here. Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God. So it clearly identifies the one seated on the throne. Worthy art thou to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things. Worthy of his praise to recognize that he is the creator of all things, visible and invisible. Thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. That's the content. So, that's some of the particulars. Again, there's a preoccupation with worship. such that everything else is secondary. They are prostate, prostrate before Him. <laughs> it's late. <laughs> so, they are preoccupied. Uh, there are also some prerequisites that we could get into. Uh, proper attitude, uh, proper focus, Having adequate understanding of who God is is a prerequisite. And in this passage, we see there's a clear understanding of who God is. He is Creator. He is the one that is the author of all things. He created all things, and also He's the maintainer of all things. And because of Thy will, they existed and were created. They have a purpose behind them, and God is ultimately the purpose behind all things. Here's a few just insights, few applications that we can draw from this worshipful scene. Any questions on chapter 4? There's a lot of stuff there. I don't know how to answer that because... Uh, it's dependent on your view as to what happens to the believer after he dies. 
one view is like in it seems in the Old Testament, uh, believers are in kind of a holding pattern, kind of waiting for this event. Uh, personally, my view that I feel comfortable with because of some passages like Paul uh, to be present uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. My thinking is that time is part of the created realm. Does that make sense? Time is part of the created realm. So when we die, we go outside of the created realm and outside of the time frame that we're familiar, the ticking of the clock. We go outside of that. And in some way, we are in an eternal condition outside of time, not influenced by it, not affected by it. So in a sense, the moment that a believer dies, I think he goes, if he is present before the throne, he's there. So for those that have died, if this is, if this is accurate, if this is true to Scripture, then yes, that's going on right now. And has been throughout church age. Uh, because they would be, from this perspective, they would be outside of time. Uh, in fact, we go, we would go immediately to the Bema, and then we go here and everything else. Uh, so saints that die are not just waiting for the rest of us to get there before they experience all this. So I think, yeah, I think we worship right away. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. And there's other verses like that where it seems that it's immediacy, the immediacy of, of the, occur, the occurrence. Does that make sense? Um, that's the best that I have been able to come up with in terms of trying to explain what happens after we die. Uh, so to answer your question, kind of a long answer, but uh, the answer is yes. If that's true. Okay. I'll let you decide what you want to come up with. Uh, the traditional, more common view is that believers that have died are in some state of waiting till time works itself out. But that would tie them to time, which I think time is part of the creation. Does that make, does that make sense? Okay. Any other questions on... Yeah, the, uh, time goes on with respect to the earth. So in terms of the timing of things with respect to the earth, from the earth's perspective, it would appear that the saints are raised then. But in, rea yeah, in reality, they're already present with the Lord. Yeah, there certainly is not free of problems, but... Uh, the alternative is you have to come up with some place where people are waiting. And, you know, wh what are they waiting for? I mean, uh, I, have a, I have a bigger problem with that concept than seeing the believer immediately in the presence of the Lord. Okay, so we have the seven-sealed scroll, Origin in Heaven. One seated on the throne, and the focus is worship. Now we want to look at the Lamb 
who is distinct from the one that's seated on the throne. And the focus will be a scroll, but the same direction of worship we'll see in chapter 5. And this is an interesting passage. In fact, um, not easy, but I think if we sort it out, I think it makes a lot of sense in terms of what God is doing in the rest of the book of Revelation. So hopefully we want to be careful here in trying to understand what's happening in chapter 5. In reality, chapters 4 and 5 should go together. Uh, Remember, Chapter breaks and verse breaks are pretty sometimes arbitrary. Uh, I think the reason they're broken into two chapters is because you have the worship there and then it kind of goes back. But the two go together. The two are very closely related. So the first thing in verse 1, And I saw, so John again, uh, this is a... A deo, that word that is common here of these visions that John is seeing, things that he's actually seeing with his eyes. Uh, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, there's the throne again, a book, a biblion is the Greek word. Uh, Written inside and out, there's the Greek word for you. Probably a scroll. That's why I've used the imagery in the slide there. Now, this is an unusual one. Uh, typically, most scrolls were only written on one side. The, the back side was coarser material and harder to write. But in that period, there's archaeological artifacts of scrolls that, ha- that do have writing on the inside and the, and the back side. And some of them uh, have a reason for it. So the big issue that we're going to deal with here is what is this scroll? Uh, What is the significance of the scroll? Uh, First of all, scrolls in that day generally look something like what the uh, sketch looks like. There was usually a wooden stick or uh, wood that you could roll out a scroll and you would roll them out till you got to the place that you wanted to read. Uh, Much like that passage where Jesus was given the scroll of Isaiah and he unrolls it to uh, Isaiah 61 and he reads from that passage. Uh, This was very typical in uh, the synagogue to, to roll out a scroll like this. Uh, the size of them for a book of the book of Revelation typically would be about 15 feet in length. Probably the length of this stage up here. And obviously rolled up and you just open the portion that you were to read. So I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and out or inside and on the back Uh, This one is sealed with seven seals. And the way they would seal a document, and the imagery here is of of some sort of a legal document. I I don't think that that's uh, questioned. Uh, Most commentators see some sort of a legal document. 
And in the sealing of legal documents in that day, if it was an extended document, if it had several seals, it would be rolled up, sealed, rolled up some more, sealed again, rolled up some more, sealed some more till you had the number that you wanted to seal it. Uh, and in this case, we would have a scroll that would have seven rollings and then seven seals. So that when we see in chapter 6, the seals are going to be broken, the scroll is unrolled, seal broken, and there's a portion or content of the seal, and then it's unrolled, or another seal broken and unrolled some more. That's the imagery that we have here. So it's a book written inside and on the back, sealed with these seven seals. So let's take a look at what are the possibilities. Again, I've got a list of what? Nine weird ones. The Old Testament Torah, or the Old Testament and the New Testament, Christ Himself, a scroll of divine providence containing prophetic fortunes of the church. It's always about us. Uh, words of lament, mourning, and woe, like Ezekiel. Book of Doom, Lamb's Book of Life. Well, those are some of the strange ones. I'm sorry, but the idea of one scroll with seven different seals. Seal is on the outside. So, but if you're going to keep rolling it, you're just putting wax. No, it would. I don't understand. So like, you would like put the hot wax in there and keep rolling it, mm -hmm. and it would just glue it. Yeah, to the the page before it, so you couldn't open it. Okay. Sorry, I no problem. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. What is this slide all about? Oh, this this is just some of the things that I've just told you about. Uh, books in general, Old Testament scrolls, there's New Testament scrolls. Uh, most of the New Testament were written after the pattern of the Old Testament. There was still the, the technology that was available. It's not till later on that we have books or what they call codexes. Codi? I don't know what the plural of that is. Hmm? Codices. Codices. All right. There's a scholar in the back there. Uh, what is this book? Book of Life? A will. I'm not sure what that slide is. Here's views on the scroll. Uh, Book of Destiny, <coughs> which would go along with uh, the content of the Book of Revelation. That's one suggestion. Announcement of the consummation of all things. You'll find these in different commentaries. 
So consummation of all history. So it's kind of a review of how things are going to end. Um, I'm not sure what the distinction between these two views are. Another view that is a possibility is like a will or a testament. Some, com some good commentators hold to this view that this is a will type thing and I think that has some merit to it. Uh, probably the best view is that this and this goes into some of the background that I'll give you here. This, this goes into the idea of the title deed of creation. It's probably the best view. And what we mean, you, you kind of have to understand what has happened historically in terms of the planet because everything's going to deal with planet Earth here in chapter 6 and on. Uh, the background here goes all the way back to Genesis to support this idea here. In Genesis 1, beginning in verse 28, God, God gave and delegated to man sovereignty over the earth, a rulership. He intended to give finite sovereignty to man as his representative on planet earth. We are to subdue uh, the earth. We are to have dominion over the earth, right? In fact, that's our main function as humans. That's our main purpose is from Genesis 1 is to have dominion. In fact, there's two, two mandates there. Uh, ma uh, mandate for the family. Uh, not just the family, but uh, a mandate of reproduction, being fruitful and multiplying. This is God's intent. Families are the heart of what man is all about, mankind. Uh, the idea of dominion and rulership, this gets into virtually every other aspect that we endeavor to pursue as men and women. Uh, this talks about how we are to interact with the creation, how we are to function within God's creative realm. So it involves all of the areas of vocation. It involves, and you have to understand the earth, so it involves all of the aspects of technology. To be able to subdue something, you have to understand what it's all about. So it includes all of the sciences and all of... Uh, the areas of technology, man was designed to get into those areas. Now, this is before sin. But I don't think the, the mandate has been rescinded so, uh, rescinded. so I think this is still part of our calling. Now, I think we get more focused uh, because of other things that God has for us. But overall, we have to function in the environment that God has put us. So we have to make a living. We have to provide... We have to maintain a family. We, we do all of these things. Uh, and the design was that uh, God be glorified in all these things. And that was the original design. Man was to take care of that garden and be the sovereign over it. And then what happened? Sin intervened. And at that point, everything changed. 
man lost in some measure not the obligation, but he lost the ability to be able to really subdue the earth. And he lost that sovereignty. He was forfeited in large measure. So that dominion was lost as a result of the fall. And uh, a usurper or one that uh, intervened and took control of the earth, you know who he is, right? Because man listened to him rather than what God had set forth. He has been given some limited sovereignty, but he is doing what God intended for man to do in a perverted way, in every way perverted and evil. He's described as what in Ephesians 2.2? 2, 2? The prince of the power of the air. He has authority. He's a prince. What is he called in John 14, verse 30? He's a ruler. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he's called the God of this world. Let's look up 1 John 5.19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He has dominion. He has rulership. He has limited sovereignty over the earth. God has permitted that. But he, he does it as a usurper, if you will. God permitting that. Now, we also know in the Old Testament, Israel was given land in the land of Israel, obviously. And in the law, and some of you are probably even more familiar than I am, but in the law, we know that there are certain restrictions and uh, stipulations in terms of how do you sell land and what do you do with land. Uh, if you uh, find yourself in misfortune, you can sell your land. You can't sell it across to other tribes, but you can sell your land and others will take ownership and utilize it in a productive way, hopefully. But you always have the right to buy it back, and in the year of Jubilee, it is granted back. So, all of this Old Testament background, I think, helps us to understand, I think, what's going on in, in chapter 6. So, let's lay that out. Uh, what happens here is, in a grand way, we have somebody that has taken over property that ultimately belongs to God that God intended for man to have sovereignty and dominion over. Does that make sense? Now, land in Israel could be redeemed at a later time. If your fortunes changed, uh, you uh, were able to redeem the land. Or if a relative, a kinsman, redeemer... Uh, the whole imagery in the book of Ruth could purchase that land on your behalf. Uh, that's what Boaz does. He 
purchases land that had been lost as a result of famine and other misfortunes. Uh, Ruth is involved in all that. So this kinsman redeemer or a relative or one from your tribe could buy this land and redeem it back and he could grant it to you or you could buy it back yourself if you had the means. Now, on some occasions, the land could be purchased but not immediately taken possession of. That seems to be some of the imagery that we have in this bigger idea of the earth. Uh, God has delayed taking possession. Are you following here? The earth itself turned to Romans. We're talking about the planet, the earth, nature. Romans 8. Now, Paul is using in a context of suffering, but he goes off a little bit on a tangent there and gives us some insight into a, a bigger thing that's going on, on in the planet. In verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in to be revealed to us. In other words, uh, there's going to come a time when everything's going to be brought back into normalcy. We're in an abnormal situation. Suffering is an evil, is a temporary thing. God's going to bring back glory. And he talks about the creation. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For our, rele- our revealing. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Uh, And the passage goes on. But the point being, the earth itself is yearning and anticipating God reversing the present situation of the curse. Now, all this fits in with what's going to happen in chapter 6, and I think interprets and helps us understand what we're talking about in terms of a title deed here. Because we're going to look at, there's only one that's worthy to open this document. So the earth is awaiting a redemption, but in order to have this redemption, it requires a separation or a cleansing. That's what judgment is. Jesus already paid the ransom price. He already paid the penalty of sin. He died. So He has already redeemed all and He has already judged Satan. The usurper has already been judged. He just has not taken possession of the earth yet. Going back uh, to that Ephesians passage. Well, no, this is another, another Ephesians passage. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. This is different from the chapter 3 one we looked at. Look at verse 20. 
which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come and he will put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. By virtue of death and resurrection, Christ is now at the right hand of the Father, ready uh, to basically bring an end to sin and evil, but judgment must, must come first, and He is ready to take possession of the earth, and that's what the Millennial Kingdom is all about. Does that make sense? So when Jesus returns visibly in uh, Revelation 19, that will be the final taking possession of the earth. And then He will make the earth productive as in the imagery, well, not imagery, but the, uh, the physical situation of the Israelites. They get their, their plot of land back and now they plant it and have production out of it and the enjoyment of the fruits of their labor. The millennial kingdom, similarly, Christ will take possession. But before He takes possession, He must cleanse the earth. He must deal with sin. He must judge it. That's what chapter 6 is all about. So, I think that's the background here. Uh, remember, you have to think Jewish. You have to think Israelite. You have to think uh, in terms of what the Old Testament has already laid down for us. So it makes sense that what we have here, this scroll, may be something like a title deed of all of the creation, and the opening of the scroll is the process that uh, Jesus Christ begins to take in taking back the land and taking it away from the usurper. The usurper will in fact be bound for a thousand years. Does that make sense? That's probably the best view there. A lot of background there, but we're not familiar with some of these things, or at least most people. You, you, you all are probably more familiar because you spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. Some would see a combination of some of these views, but number four is probably the, the best one. Does this all make sense? I went through a lot of stuff here. This familiar... Stuff you've heard this before, I hope, maybe, maybe a little bit. Uh, you know about God, uh, Satan as the god of this world, and this is kind of the context of all that, and where it comes from in terms of Genesis and man's forfeiting in the fall and all that. So, uh, history is just this this plan that is unfolding from Genesis. God working to unfold all of these things that uh, He will bring about. The second coming is just the final stage of God working out this great plan that started with man in the Garden of Eden. Uh, remember that first chart that I showed you of God's perspective on history? This is, this, this is part of that where evil is bounded and God is going to ultimately finish dealing with evil. And the process involves judgment. We'll talk some more about that when we look at chapter 6. 
Okay, uh, now we look in verse 3, or verse 2. And I saw a strong angel, again, another angel. This one is a powerful one. Proclaiming, here's another instrument of God. uh, Here's another function. It'd be good uh, to just read through the book of Revelation just for the purpose of um, seeing all the things that you can come up with in terms of how angels are functioning and how God uses them. Just in the book of Revelation, you'll come up with a long list. Uh, Verse 2, here's an angel that uh, is a preacher. He's proclaiming with a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? This is a very significant book, this scroll. And we have the answer. No one. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. See, the Bible doesn't believe in a flat earth. (laughs) The biblical viewpoint uh, is not flat earth. Under the earth. Uh, Although I think this is a little figure of speech. Uh, No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or even to look into it. That's a sad thing. Because this is a significant book. This, this, This document, which I think is a legal document, all of God's plan hinges on it. No one is worthy to open it. So what does John do? Uh, What can we do? No one in heaven on earth, in heaven, no one's worthy. There's no angelic creature that is worthy. There's no human being. Not even the Pope is not even worthy here. Oh yeah, I forget, you're not a Roman Catholic audience. Uh, Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Uh, John is moved by this. Uh, One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, there is one. Uh, Did I skip a verse? Verse 4. And I began to weep greatly. Because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. So he begins to weep. Uh, This is is huge. This is significant. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. Where does that come from? Yes, Genesis, which is a, what kind of passage? Genesis 49, 9 and 10, which designates the tribe of Judah as being the line through which Messiah comes. So this is a messianic allusion here. So the one that is the lion from the tribe of Judah And then we have the other allusion, the root of Jesse, 
Where does that come from? Or the root of David? Where does that imagery come from? Isaiah 11. 11, 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from it, from his roots, will bear fruit. That's another messianic passage. In fact, uh, the following verses make that clearly messianic. So, uh, the identity, only Messiah is worthy. And the reason for it, he has overcome. He, he's gone through all of the temptations. He's gone through all of the suffering. He's gone to the ultimate death. He's paid the price. He's the only one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And angels are not worthy. They have not do, done uh, uh, the proper things that would worth, make them worthy. He has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. It's only the Lamb that is worthy. He's incomparable to any other. He is sovereign. Uh, humanity in, in the imagery here, the root of David, the one that has a, a lineage and a tie with mankind, His redemption is in view. He is worthy. He's the omnipotent one. He's the omniscient one. He has the authority to open the book. Now, some of these elements I've drawn out of the passage. I didn't bring them out uh, sequentially, but... Uh, I use that slide to bring some applications, but let's move on from there for the sake of time. So, only one is worthy, only the Lord Jesus Christ. The root of David has overcome, that's an allusion to his death and resurrection, his redemption, so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb. There's John's favorite descriptive term of Jesus Christ. A lamb standing as if slain. How does a lamb stand if it's slain? <laughs> kind of embedded in that is resurrection. He's standing because he's been raised. But as if slain, as if, the, that's the key there, uh, so every Im the image is that uh, reminiscent of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Having seven horns and seven eyes. Seven horns are image of omnipotence. That's why I have that up here. Uh, the eyes, omniscience. which are the seven spirits sent out in, into all the earth. Verse 7, And He came and He took it out of the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. 
So he takes the he, he's not only worthy, but he takes the book. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Remember, this is a heavenly scene. So we have heavenly imagery here, kind of the counterpart in heaven of things Jewish in the Old Testament. We've already interpreted the four living creatures. These are the same angelic beings that we saw in chapter 4. The same 24 elders, representatives of the church. They fall down before the Lamb. Uh, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense. And that imagery is interpreted, which are the prayers of the saints. In the Old Testament, incense was a picture of the prayers of the saints rising up as the smoke would rise up, the rising up to, to God in, in, in His presence. And they sing a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book. He is worthy. He's the only one that is worthy. And to break its seals, for thou wast slain. The emphasis of the worship here is the redemptive work. The emphasis in chapter 4 is the creation work of the one seated on the throne. Here we have the focus on the redemptive work of the Son. Two major works of all of Scripture, the two most significant works of God. Creating all things. And by the way, uh, real popular in the church today are compromises of the book of Genesis. And the whole concept of uh, creation. The majority of Christians today don't believe in the Genesis account in, in its literal understanding. So, the last book, and from heaven... We have an acknowledgement that God is Creator. There's a big compromise within the church today. The, the most popular view of Genesis is a theistic evolutionary view. Chapter 4 refutes that. At the very end, at the consummation of all things in Genesis or Revelation chapter 4, God is praised as Creator. And He's Creator of all things. There's no hint in this that God used any means other than His almighty uh, power, His omnipotent power. In fact, uh, specifically, not only in Genesis, but in the Psalms, God spoke everything into existence. theory of evolution is, a, is a, a huge lie and myth. So, four, the emphasis on God as Creator. Five, as significant as creating all things is what Christ accomplished on behalf of sinners. He purchased for God with His blood, that's the payment, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And Thou hast made them, here's that little phrase we already looked at in the uh, first part of Genesis. He made them a kingdom and priests to our God, 
and they will reign upon the earth. So we have a priesthood that has a ruling function. Uh, that This priesthood will have both a mediatory function and a uh, kingly or ruling or authoritative function. And this will take place during the kingdom. We will... Uh, in resurrection bodies, I believe, we will in fact be mediators in the kingdom to, to people that uh, are there in mortal bodies. Uh, we may have ministries that uh, encourage, that teach, that do all the things that we do here. We will function in resurrection bodies. It may be possible, it's hard to conceive, and, and this is speculation, but it's possible uh, you remember when Jesus appeared to different disciples? He appeared to the women. He was able to manifest himself in almost everyday ways. In, in fact, the two Emmaus travelers didn't recognize him. They walked with him all day in bright sunlight, didn't recognize him as Jesus Christ. In fact, they're surprised that he didn't know what was going on. Yeah, haven't you heard that you know the one that we thought was the Messiah was killed? Uh, so he manifested himself in a form that they were not able to understand who he was. Later on, in obscurity and in darkness, when he broke the bread and gave thanks, their eyes were open. So I could envision in the Millennial Kingdom, you and I walking down the street with people and teaching them the Word, helping them along, encouraging them, exhorting them. Uh, them not even knowing that we are, in fact, resurrected beings. So I think we might have a ministry there, and part of that ministry, I think, uh, the essence of it is described in verse 10. Uh, we will have a ruling ministry. We will be given administrative positions, I believe, but we will also be mediators in that we will uh, be God's representatives in dealing with and working with uh, probably mortal humans in the Millennial Kingdom. There might even be uh, opportunities to share the Gospel with the unbelievers that are born in the Kingdom. We'll talk about that. There's going to be individuals that are born in the Millennial Kingdom. That's according to Isaiah 65. At least alluded in 65 verse 20. Uh, so, uh, we have here a new song that is basically a praise song uh, attributing worthiness to the one that is able to take the book. And we have the, the content or the reasons why he is worshipped and praised. Uh, Two-fold two reason. One, he has done the work of redemption. And secondly, he is granted to his believers uh, a purpose and function in the kingdom. And I looked. So John continues to see things that are supernatural. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. 
these phrases kind of convey this idea of innumerable numbers here. So, if John wants to convey this idea, this is the phrases that he can use to convey the idea of an innumerable number. So, those other numbers that are specific, the 144,000, large number, but I think it's very specific, and I would take it literally. 200, an army of 200 million, I would take that literally. Because John could have used phraseology similar here. So, something of an innumerable number of angelic creatures, living creatures, and elders all together. The number of them were, was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And here we have the content of their worship and their praise. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb. The emphasis on His worthiness. Again, uh, another mention. This is the third time in this chapter alone. The Lamb is mentioned. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Another reference to His redemptive work. And uh, the worship itself to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then verse 13, And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, again, same little phrase there, and on the sea, in other words, comprehensive, all things in them, I heard saying in Him who sits on the throne, and distinction being made between the persons of the Trinity here, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion. And notice it ends with dominion. The ultimate sovereignty, the ultimate rulership is Jesus Christ forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. So, more worship. We're not going to get tired of worshiping. Uh, so we ought to get into the habit of doing it and making it a lifestyle. Uh, making it almost uh, a, a habitual thing. Now, worship is not just necessarily just sitting down and praising God. It can include a lot of things. I think it's more of an, an, an attitude of attributing everything to God and, and recognizing He as the source of it. Uh, and praising Him in the midst of it. So it can include, and, and I know that you all emphasize, emphasize uh, the receiving and studying of the Word. I think that is a form, a legitimate form of worship. But it, it should also be accompanied with the idea of just the, the wonderful concepts that God can give to us in order to give us uh, a way to, to function and live in, in the culture in which we live in. But there's other forms of worship, other means of, of uh, accomplishing the worship that God desires. I, I think prayer is a form of worship. Because, uh, prayer that acknowledges that uh, we are helpless. Prayer that calls upon uh, the Lord for enablement to even accomplish simple tasks. 
So another emphasis, another passage that uh, focuses in on worship. Okay. Uh, just a little bit of a reminder here of some of the images. Some of them here. We saw the image of the lion from the tribe of Judah. We also have overt statements of judgment that is coming. We have justice, conquest, and victory. So we have kind of these counterparts in these two chapters. We have a lion mentioned, but we also have the lamb. So we have sovereignty and we have redemption. We have judgment in this passage, but we also have the work of redemption in view. In other words, the judgment is alluded to and in preparation for the opening of the scroll. And this is the outworking of God's justice. Uh, so implied is mercy as part of what's going on in this passage. Conquest, there will be death that comes. All of this victory is through ultimately the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Messianic images, imagery throughout these passages permeate. So that's the seventh, seven-sealed scroll. Originates in heaven. Chapter 4, the emphasis is the one who is seated on the throne. And the direction is worship. Chapter 5, the emphasis is on the Lamb and the scroll, that He is the only one worthy to open. And because He can open it, we have another outbreak of worship. And that will lead us, if it will come up here, to the openings on the earth, which we will begin to look at tomorrow. Uh, just by way of introduction, and we're going to finish a little early tonight. Chapter 6, we'll see six seal judgments. Six of the seven will be opened in that chapter. Uh, personally, there's, there's different, different chronologies. I'm going to kind of lay out a few of them later on, probably uh, maybe in the afternoon. But uh, I see... These six judge seal judgments as something of a kind of an overview or panoramic picture of the seven year period of time. And I'll give you some of the reasons for that. I know there's different views that other scholars, worthy scholars, would take in terms of the chronology. The chronology of the details of this seven year period are not real clear in the book of Revelation. I think in broad strokes we have a uh, general chronology, but in terms of some of the detail, uh, it is a very difficult thing to put together. So, chapter 6, we'll look at the six seal judgments. Uh, we will, I will introduce it partly tomorrow. I may not give it all in the uh, church service, but I want to introduce this period that's called Tribulation. It's composed of two halves, two three-and-a-half-year periods of time. Chapter 6, uh, I think, alludes to the very beginning and gives us a panoramic view of this entire period of time. And then we have a recapitulation of some events, probably a little bit later 
in the bowl judgment. So I'll give you what makes most sense to me, and I'll give you some of the other views in terms of the, how to put the chronology together. Now, the rapture, I don't see it in the book of Revelation. In fact, I kind of put it a little bit before this period of time. Uh, there may be a little gap. It may not be simultaneous with what kicks off the seven years. The seven years is a precise and uh, definite time frame that is already spelled out for us in Daniel chapter 9. It's a seven-year period. What kicks that off is not the rapture. What kicks off the seven year is a signing of a document, the signing of a covenant. There may actually be an interval of time. There may be, I don't know, maybe a year in there between that and the signing of the covenant. Daniel 9, the signing of the covenant, is what kicks it off. Daniel also specifies for us what uh, an event that takes place in the middle that kind of controls some of the chronology. And the book of Revelation continually refers not to the seven years, but continually refers to the individual halves of the seven years. Uh, this tribulation is a period of Jewish time. The church is not on a clock. The church is not on a calendar. The church does not have a chronological layout. Israel does. Even before they were a nation in, in the covenant in Genesis 15, we already, God is already marking time and already predicting in the future a time frame. By the time we come to Daniel, Daniel lays out the rest of Israel's history. Seventy groups of seven years. Israel is in a on a time frame. The history of Israel is chronological and it's laid out. There's one week of Israel's history that has never been fulfilled. This is that week. So what's happening here has relationship not to the church. It has relationship to Israel. Uh, we want to and we have a tendency of wanting to have relationship to us. Again, it's all about us, remember? But biblically, that's not the case. So that's what we will focus in on in chapter 6. And in fact, from 6 on to chapter 18, that's the, the focus of that big portion. This is extremely important that we have that amount of revelation in one, in one book. From chapters 6 to 18. So we have what? What is that? 13 chapters out of 22 that are de dealing with a seven-year period of time that the church is not involved in. Now, I think there's a lot there that we can gain. We've already seen just from chapters 4 and 5, there are a lot of application that we can draw in terms of just worship itself. So that'll be what we will focus in on when we look at chapter 6. And just the beginning of it, we will look at the first four seal judgments. This may be all I, I will be able to do tomorrow is the four horsemen of Revelation chapter 6. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we are impressed and uh, humbled at the same time uh, how little we probably worship and the great...
opportunity that we have to praise and worship you and uh, and necessity from our perspective not that you need it uh, but we need it we need it to maintain a proper focus and a proper attitude towards all other things uh, may we be further impressed as all of the creatures that are before the throne and all of the creatures that observe that only the Lamb is worthy, uh, their natural response is to bow down before you and worship and praise and adore and uh, recognize you as, as totally worthy. May we continue to have growth in this area that we may uh, live lives that uh, do in fact praise and worship you. We pray for tomorrow, and we pray that uh, we would continue to be able to gain insight from your word, that you would continue to bless us and continue to use your spirit to enlighten us and to guide us. Uh, We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.